Today on Logosish, we are going global, so stay tuned as we talk about a variety of weird, random, niche topics related to United Methodism as a way of exploring larger challenges for Christianity in the United States. Our major topic today is the General Conference of the United Methodist Church. Since we recorded this, some of the facts on the ground have changed. But overall, the general content remains the same and accurate. So if you're really curious about the details, you're welcome to Google it. You can find it just about anywhere. In the meantime, stay tuned, check it out, enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. I'm um, Brian and I'm here with John and Garrett. How are you guys doing? Brian, did you almost just forget your name just now? No. Keep going. I don't know. I feel like there was a pause there. Um, but I'm doing great here in my last days of uh, Florida living. The last days of Florida living. Yeah, um, I'm checking out of this uh, it, 10-ish year vacation going back north. Sounds positively apocalyptic. <laughs> we are excited that Garrett is actually going to live uh, in the state between John and I. Officially, John and I are on the edges of uh, where we have to travel to visit one another, so that's exciting. It, it is really nice. Though, Brian, I do feel the need to affirm that nothing can come between us. Nobody and nothing. Oh, well, that's adorable. So moving on to our actual uh, topics today. Today we have two guests uh, to talk about issues uh, going before General Conference. We have uh, Lindsey Bayman Fleeman, who's an elder serving in the Richmond area of the Virginia Annual Conference. And Jason Stanley, who's a deacon serving on the Elizabeth River District, my district, in the Virginia Annual Conference. How are you guys doing? Doing great. How are you? Life is um, <laughs> always changing in COVID, so uh, that's and, accurate. And yet, it is oddly familiar since I don't leave my house. Yeah, no, it's good to be with y'all. Yep, good to be here, guys. Thanks. So, uh, kind of first question to kind of get us going: What in the world is a general conference? Shall we tag team it, Jason? Yep, I'll follow your lead. Okay, so the general conference is the only body of the United Methodist Church that can speak for the United Methodist Church. Tag. And it meets. (laughs) How often does it meet? It meets uh, every four years uh, by tradition, except when there's a global pandemic. Right. Our discipline did not make provisions for that. (laughs) So yeah, every four years and delegates from the annual conferences and central conferences that's beyond the U.S. are elected. And based on your size of conference is how many people you get. How many How many people can attend on behalf of that conference Right. at the general conference? And most of the decisions are related to polity, how the church functions, um, and how we quote unquote do church. The general conference is probably best known for it's 40 plus year debate about LGBTQ issues and inclusion. So that's kind of general conference in a nutshell. So over the past couple of weeks, we've been doing a series where we've been talking, you know, kind of around a lot of the stuff that's going on in United Methodism, because we feel like it's a little bit of a proxy for what's going on in the general sort of American Christian landscape. And, you know, one of the things we've highlighted is is that the General Conference is sort of the biggest body in a series of increasingly smaller bodies, series of conferences and gatherings and meetings going down to, you know, the essentially the local level. So can you give us an example of what a quote-unquote church polity decision would look like versus like the decisions that get made normally on the local level? Yeah, so so ordination requirements, for example, are things are pol- part of our polity that's decided at general conference so that there's uh, uniformity across annual conferences. One of the things that I think is coming before us whenever general conference is had is uh, involuntary leave of absence, and those kinds of things, things that Lindsay gets to deal with on a regular basis. Right. <laughs> right. So I, 
I think, you know, the general conference is structured where you meet in a subcommittee for a week and then you go to the full plenary for a week. And so it, it really is designed to be collaborative and do all those kinds of things. I think the local church, the local level obviously does it better. Um, there's more organic conversations. There's, I think, more transparency, perhaps less politics. And so it might take longer to make a decision, but it's a different type of conferencing that's happening. And I would I would add, ideally, the conferencing that's happening at the general conference level, ideally, mm -hmm. is to empower the local church to be in ministry. Right. In order to make disciples of, of Jesus Christ, because let's be honest, it's not going to happen at the general conference level. Correct. There is not an altar call. There is not. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, I, that's great, Jason. Yeah, I love uh, you know a global conference ending in an altar call really does put the cherry on top. You uh, heard it here first. We're gonna get that going. <laughs> monster trucks are so much better. Than <laughs> True. Uh, oh, I would show up for some monster trucks. <laughs> we almost did. Was, yeah, touche. <laughs> For uh, for everyone who doesn't understand our very Methodist reference, uh, one of the previous general conferences had to end by a particular time because there was literally a monster truck rally scheduled for the same venue happening in the days following, and they had to have trucks of dirt to fill in the arena. It was very symbolic of that general conference. Um. <laughs> well, and, and, and to be honest, I'm not so certain that we've had a, I'm not sure when the last like healthy resolutions have like happened at general conference because yeah. 2019 was, seems to be fairly harmful to a lot of folks in the United States, particularly the LGBTQ community. <clears throat> uh, 2016 ended with the, you know, kind of establishment of the commission on the way forward that, that we then ignored everything that they did. And then uh, before that was the 2012 general conference, which is generally about kind of how do we need to restructure our global denomination and then in the last hours of that happening, everything that they had previously worked on and proposed also got thrown in the trash bin. So yeah. it's probably been like since before, at least John Garrett and I were in college, that we've had like an actual decision mm -hmm. made at General Conference that actually affected the global church beyond like what the budget is and things like that. So mm -hmm. it, it hasn't been a well-functioning system in some time. Yeah. I think we do the maintenance work really well, but when it comes down to, no, like, do we need to alter what students take in seminary for an MDiv? You can't do it with 800 and some people. It's really hard. I think, you know, what's really important, especially for me and just general, um, like, academic study is being mindful of context, right? Especially making decisions about, you know, education for clergy or certain initiatives and like you said before like you know when where the rubber meets the road is the local church and i think you know a little bit more more attention needs to be played to context um, and the needs of a particular area so you know a lot of things that are have or that affect western churches or and particularly u.s churches going to be vastly different than western churches that are affecting people in poland or you know wherever um, right. people find themselves um, or even in other parts of the world the global um, south and asia places like that too yeah so my question is like how does that like what do we do with the general conference then like and you know if it is a sort of coming together on a global scale my question is like what what goals do we want to approach with that? Because we would have to essentially sort of change our mindset on like how all of that works if we take context really as an important thing first. Garrett, before we get to your question, can we talk about why the system is the way it is? Because, you know, that's a significant uh, step that we've kind of skipped in our conversation so far is like, what's the goal of having a global body that makes decisions about our common life together anyway. 
Like, why not just do it all at the local level? Well, I think the denomination, you know, we're not independent churches. And so the theological ideas and values and core of the United Methodist Church, I think we affirm, um, unites us across time and space. And I think the hope is that we are a global and missional church, that what we decide, what we say, what we affirm translates across context and countries and all those things. What I'm finding in an experience I had, I sat in on one of those subcommittees of the General Conference in 2012, local church, and we were voting on whether you had to be 18 to be in the United Methodist Women, something obscure. And a gentleman from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo stood up and goes, all of our girls and women are United Methodist Women. It had nothing, I mean, it didn't bar them from being in mission and ministry. It had nothing to do. And so that was just a very eye-opening moment of this book is for the U.S. church. It is. Um, And so I think we hope to be global and missional. Do we really, are we really mindful of context? Are we really making decisions that can translate? I don't, I'm not always sure we are. And, and that brings up the connector there to Garrett's question is part one of the challenges of general conference as it currently is, is that the majority of the decisions that are being made affect the U.S. church. They're things that only apply uh, to the church in the United States. Right. Uh, and part of the part of the way that's able to happen or, or the reason that happens is the central conferences have through the polity, through our polity, the central conferences have a book of discipline that they voted on at their at their central conferences that enables them to contextually be in ministry right. at the local level. We have not been able to successfully get to that place for the United States. Mm-hmm. Brian mentioned 2012, 2008 in Tampa. Those general conferences were moving in that direction and then it didn't happen. Uh, and there's some deep, I, I believe in, in both of those cases, it was ruled unconstitutional by the Judicial Council, which says we have some deep work to do within our constitution to make the church relevant to it, to the time that we are in so that we can be in ministry at the local level more effectively. And and to further that like stream of thought, that, that also kind of stretches all the way back in our story from the fact that in Methodism's earliest days, it wasn't meant to be a denomination. It just happened to become one due to circumstances that arose in the United States. Well, mm-hmm. what were the colonies at that point? And then it's been, well, not all of Methodism, but a good portion of Methodism has been really focused on kind of American culture ever since, including issues involving slavery and throughout the whole history. So I think I think it's deeply rooted in our story as a whole. And and part of that story story is colonialism and we need to name that and own that because that that is also one of the sins of the church that has affected um, our polity and our decision making processes. Well and mercy, what's so fascinating about that is that 2020 was going to be the first general conference where delegates outside of the US outnumbered those inside. And so then you think about, okay, what do they care about the budget for some obscure, you know? Um, And so I was just, I am still looking forward to that general conference, but that was just a major shift when you think about colonialism and how missionaries did their work initially. And let's make that connection to what you were saying earlier, Lindsay, where the number of delegates to the general conference is based on the membership of an yes. annual conference. So while the, while the church in the United States has been declining in membership, the church in Africa has been growing. And so right. the result has been, obviously, that their delegations are larger than the delegations from the United States. Yeah, more representation. Yeah. Right. Which then forces well maybe not forces compels us to really take the step into being a global an actual global church 
that might require, well, this might be overstated, that might require the United States and the jurisdictions therein to be treated more like a central conference. So there, so that there aren't distinctions in between what happens in the United States and what happens around the rest of the world. It, and we're not was, there yet. And, and that was part of what conversations were supposed to happen right. in 2020, uh, kind of setting the United States as a regional conference made up of jurisdictions. You know, one of the other things that strikes me about the decision, you know, one, by doing that, we become truly focused on the global issues that affect United Methodist churches across the globe. But part of the other thing is if we took out of the agenda of general conference, all the things that are U.S. centric, we would reduce the amount of cost just to be fiscally responsible and good stewards of our funds, right? We, we, we would be better stewards of the funds that we have mm -hmm. at a time when we are lacking in funds. Yeah. And you've, and you've called people literally from the corners of the earth to come together. Let's make the most of that. And in reducing content and costs, um, we would have a better opportunity for accurate translation, materials ahead of time, preparation for those for whom English is not their first language. Because um, it, it, it really is an equity issue as well. So to paint a picture then, essentially what we have is a denomination that aspires to be connected on a global sort of universal level, but is currently struggling with what it means to both be connected at that universal level while also honoring people's unique individual expressions at the local level, at the individual level, at the sort of community cultural level. And we've been grappling with that for some time, in part because we are so widespread across the globe, across countries that drift into Africa and the Philippines and the United States and Europe and beyond. And, you know, then we have even then some additional Methodist denominations that are not technically part of the United Methodist Church, but are sort of a, a, a honorary members, so to speak, who get to send some additional delegates to these kinds of conferences. So I, I really wonder why does this problem matter for somebody who's not a United Methodist? John, I think you described most the dilemma for most mainline denominations right now. Um, I think part of it is our history is we are so embedded in our history. And for those of us on the call from, from the state of the Commonwealth, excuse me, the Commonwealth of Virginia, we know well how sometimes the steepness of our history is the very barrier we need to overcome to move forward and to be relevant today. I might need you to repeat your question in a second because I, I I feel like I'm I'm starting to veer off a little bit. But one of the challenges that we have to overcome is the the ability to name that which is the barrier preventing us from being the church that God is calling us to be in this time. And I think the pandemic, as awful as it has been this past year, has been the the urgency of change that that the denomination needed uh in order to move forward you know we're we're at the called uh general conference in this coming may some of the petitions that are being proposed are petitions that make it possible for us to do church right it removes barriers pandemic, right <laughs> right and that's just our very the polity and those things that we have the guardrails that we have created in order to be in ministry are the very things that are preventing us from being in ministry. And Jason, can I, I just as a kind of response to the guardrails comment, I think we have, I mean, Methodism has been focused on creating a discipline and that at first was meant to be a spiritual discipline. Hmm. Um, and we morphed it into how do we make like a, denominational Ooh. structure and rules that are saying this is how you do church when we're actually really bad at teaching people the spiritual part now like it, just to be a little self-reflective and the image that comes to mind is the image of the pharisees 
and that where I, I'm gonna I'm I mean, I'm a deacon. I can go there, right? <laughs> you you do whatever you yes. want, Jason. You make my district run. <laughs> I already opened the doors. I better go into it. But when when the law did not was not clear, right, about what what was right or what was wrong, the Pharisees created right new rules. I'm with the scholars in the room. I'm looking at you three to help me make sure I'm on track here, right? More rules were created to explain the rules that were already there. I feel like that's kind of the direction we've been going in for some time. We create more rules to explain the rules we already have. And the more that we do that, the less of the local flavor we get in our local churches. The current discipline, just for everyone's, uh, you know, my fact-checking role, is over 2,800 paragraphs long, which is insane. Why do you have that number in your head just right there? A valid question, John. I think it's a tattoo he has. I, it, it is. It is. A, it is definitely not a tattoo I have. Um, it's uh, absurd knowledge that I obtained when someone dared me in college to read the whole discipline end to end. The dares you experienced in college are very different from the ones I experienced, Brian. Very specific. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I mean, so John, going back to your original question, I think this dilemma that we find ourselves in matters to people who aren't United Methodist because people who are not United Methodist, and I would go on to say who are not persons of the Christian faith, do care about relationships and do care about mission. They may talk about it in a different, using different language, but they do care about our basic tenet of loving others as we love ourselves, right? And so I think sometimes I encounter folks who are either in the denomination or without, and they just can't understand the roadblocks, the guardrails, the red tape. They're like, there's a need, (laughs) go do it. (laughs) Because while we're in decline and and the money is, is going away and people are going different ways, we are still pretty fortunate when it comes to our assets and the impact we have in the world. And so I think it matters because you still have people who are looking for good and change in the world. And we're caught up in the paragraphs. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about the, the good we can do like through UMCOR. And uh, I mean, it's, it's one of the most amazing things that makes me like really proud is. to be, we have the fastest emergency response organization on planet earth like that's how efficient umcor really is in emergency response faster than fema way way faster faster than the red cross like and it's something that a lot of united methodists celebrate and that's because we have the capacity to do that from our connectional relationships and that's one of the things in current, you know, denominational struggles that people are unwilling to give up in in the struggle that is, I'm going to say, predominantly a theological struggle that has existed and predominated the general conference over uh, LGBTQIA inclusion. Yeah, I think a lot of this, too, also reflects the state of American culture more broadly. You know, this continued breakup of various mainline denominations because we're not the first one to do this we're just the ones who have hung on to the the unity mm-hmm. the longest probably because we don't want to give up our trademarks and our name right united methodists except and, and, and pensions right don't forget the pensions that's so cynical brian but you know like yeah i think there's something to be said for talking about remaining and we talked about this with helen ride several weeks ago talking about having a body that brings people together from different walks of life whether that be internationally or even just across the train tracks so to speak right right having an opportunity to be in the same room with somebody and and sometimes that involves uh, negotiating some difficult terrain and I certainly agree that I think I think we could get better at that and we could certainly get better at outreach and reorienting church away from the inside of the building but I wonder a little bit if 
we should also be reviewing this is just more of a reflection of where we are in the broader society. I, th- I think one of the challenges of General Conference has been that it occurs every four years, the same four-year cycle as the presidential election in the United States. And so the rhetoric that is heard, John, as you were saying, that's reflective in our culture, right, is the same rhetoric that we hear uh, when we're discussing things related to General Conference. And and that that's a really big barrier to overcome. The influence that that the American culture has on the church instead of the other way around, the influence the church has on our culture. And I don't, I don't know how to reverse that. I just can see and name that it's a really, for me, I've experienced that the culture influences the church and then, and, and prevents us from, I mean, we don't look any different when we're at general conference than Congress does when it's trying to make a decision about things. Right. And we know how well that works. Yeah. Lindsay, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think no matter where you fall on the theological spectrum, folks' political lens trumps their theological lens. Um, and so I would echo in the general conference space, if you closed your eyes, you may not know the difference <laughs> of where you are. And it's not to be not of the world, but it is to have a foot in both in both worlds but be looking at your experience of the world through a theological lens with Christ in mind and to see the Christ in others. And going back to Brian's comment, I, I don't know if, I don't know if we are always making disciples. <laughs> um, and I think for the general conference delegates, are we, are we sending folks to that event prayed up, like, you know what I'm saying? Like having their disciplines um, and their centering in order to go and do that hard and holy work. And that hard and holy work begins before we even get there. 100%. Yeah. Um, I mean, Lindsay, Lindsay and I have been in, I don't know how many meetings in the last four months, six mm-hmm. months, maybe mm-hmm. in preparation for one for the rescheduled 2020 but now in preparation for the called conference and the rescheduled rescheduled 2020 conference so guys what's your sense of what's going on right now like both with the scheduling and with the things that might be before the now 2022 conference what are the what are the decisions that are going to have to be made and how do those kind of spill out into the future potential of the church to be as it has been i think it's really easy to see um the email that it's been postponed and be like well there goes the can kicked again and on the one hand like yeah (laughs) it is But that goes back, for me, that goes back to, no, we're a global church and we need to make sure everyone can be there. And that may annoy people and piss them off, but that's what we're committed to. Um, But I am, to Jason's point earlier, I am so thankful that we're having a called session of the general conference to get the red tape out of the way. Like, yes, we need language pending emergency, national, I think it says disease in the legislation. I mean... (laughs) It's like, it's almost comical, but it's like, yes, we need that out of the way so we can do other things. And some of those other things are letting faithful bishops retire who haven't been able to do so. Doing some of the realignment conference work, because essentially that May meeting will say the general conference has met so we can move forward in other ways. Yeah, I think I, I think it's a really important conversation about the bishops because you know in the in the uh, southeastern jurisdiction we had five bishops slated to retire. All five of those have stayed on and have and are currently serving right now. So, in addition to the May called general conference, there will be a called uh, SCJ conference in the in July, for which we will then officially retire those five bishops. And then the challenge is going to be, how are we going to align the current, the bishops that we currently have with the conferences we currently have? Because 
it does not seem to be fiscal, fiscally possible to elect any new bishops right now. Uh, yeah, the math doesn't add up there. And just a quick promotion for next week, we're going to have Andrew Ware on, uh, who is a previous uh, uh, jurisdictional conference delegate to talk uh, to talk about issues that might be before the jurisdictional conference. So that can be that's a whole another animal. Yeah. And as a a preview, the jurisdiction is Virginia down to Florida, over to Mississippi. It's a good time. SEJ. <laughs> the best part about SEJ is after we elect bishops, they, every, every conference has a party. And, and going from different conference room to different conference room and uh, and seeing what which the different conferences are, are offering. Lots of ice cream. Mm-hmm. Lots of ice cream. Oh, my gosh. What is wrong with us? <laughs> no, it's, it's better. The further south you go, the better food it is. That's right. Same. That's right. Same. We digress. <laughs> well, that puts Florida on top for once. Well, for... <laughs> something positive don't don't delude yourself garrett like we have the best brian that's where Publix comes from the tea the chicken tenders all right Publix is awesome i was gonna say okay i'm gonna i'm with you it it might be worth uh worth noting that of the 12 pieces of legislation that are currently on the agenda for the call 2021 special session uh, Lindsay kind of already said this. They're they're all about uh, administrative and and freeing us up to be in ministry. At a, a, in in the case of a global pandemic, none of them are have anything to do with the protocol of separation of or whatever that whole title is. There is a movement to get the protocol on the agenda for this called session in May, primarily so that. Uh, decision can finally be just be made and those who are looking to leave the united methodist church to form or to join one of the other forming denominations can do so the challenge with trying to do that is the protocol represents just hundreds of pages of legislation that needs to be worked out and worked through the protocol itself is not legislation right the protocol as it's written is not before the body of general conference what's before the body of general conference is the legislation related to so so this is a can of worms um but we have not discussed the protocol would y'all uh not not explicitly yet we've talked Uh, we've danced around it a lot in some previous episodes yeah um jason do you want to or Lindsay, do you want to just briefly summarize what is the protocol? We've talked about the why of the protocol. We haven't talked about what is it. So what I'll say first is that the discipline already has a path for folks who have discerned to leave the denomination. That is not not new. That is not secret. I can put a reference in the chat. You know, that that is not a secret process. I think what the protocol is is a public declaration that a separation is needed, a divorce. Um, I think that is the closest metaphor I can use, irreconcilable differences. And what it does is it, I mean, it does a 360 of like, okay, you wanna talk about pensions? That's in there. You wanna talk about this? That's in there. And it, and it gives a play-by-play um, of how to do it and really how to set every party up to succeed. And those who are on the protocol group represent every theological, some some people might question or push back on that statement, um, but they tried to represent. There, There is a broad theological spectrum represented, yes, even if it's not every group. It. It's yeah. not everyone, but it's a broad. And so I, I call it the divorce papers. And uh, this is a good time for uh, me to just remind Keith Boyette that he could return my email and be a guest. Oh, that would be great. I'm glad you invited him. Yeah, Keith was a, a big voice of his, of, as a part of that. So Yeah. So, so worked into the protocol, into this agreement, which I think is, is helpful to remember that this was written post, I mean, uh, pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. It was like 10 um, years ago. Oh, my gosh. It does. It does feel like a long time ago. It wasn't literally. I don't know what's in that thing. 
Part of my copy there. It was literally like 15 months ago, but it might as well have been 10 years. <laughs> That's how you do the math. It equals 10. That's right. That's Sorry, right. Jason. Go. No, no, no. It's, it's all good. It's all good. But part of what's in there is the agreement includes you can leave the denomination and there's no financial responsibility to the conference of which you are leaving, which is part of the process that Lindsay mentioned in the book right. of discipline. The other, the other part of this agreement is the United Methodist Church would give to these new denominations basically seed money to plant their new denominations, right? $25 million. Um, for, to the for, tune of, right. To the tune of, for, and that is for uh, the more traditionalist end of the spectrum it's a little bit less for the more progressive end. And part of that worked out, worked itself out because the traditionalists have been organizing and planning and, but both, both ends have since in the last couple of weeks have launched their new logos and new names and new websites and, and all of those things. So part of the protocol, there is a financial element to this and, and I'm not the financial guy, like, but, and I'm, I keep bringing it all up today, but um, there is a financial element to this that we need to keep in mind because because we've already discussed we don't have enough money to pay for new bishops we are have just we're coming we're still in and coming out of a pandemic and that has that has financial implications attached to it right we are declining in the united states how are we successfully going to to cover funds and, and other things so and, and to keep in mind and be thinking about well and not to make it like all about money, but a lot of our connectional relationships, money is a huge part of that relationship. So while the church has like blossomed and bloomed in Africa, and honestly, the church in the United States could learn something uh, from some of those practices. I'm not saying all of them, but some of the practices that are going on outside of the United States, we also have to be at least conscious of the fact that the vast majority, like over 90% of the like financial support for those institutions in Africa that are seeing growth come from a dwindling financial base in the United States. And that's just a reality. And that's not saying who has the gold makes the rules. Like I'm not advocating for that at all. I'm just saying it's a reality that has to be named and addressed. And you have named the elephant in the room whenever the general conference gathers. Because over time, there have been certain U.S. delegates who are like, we foot the bill, and we're not afraid to say to delegates outside of the U.S. that we foot the bill, so we're going to need you to vote a certain way. That's not a secret. That's not and, a secret. And that's not healthy. Um, well, yeah, and so when you, but I think you've named like this ultimate, what we're seeing is this reversal. Our money is going down, and the voice that dominate, not dominates, but the voice that is the majority on the conference floor is going to be outside of the U.S. And it's just, it needs to be addressed because it's, or it's just going to manifest in crazy ways when we're there. And that's too late to start mm -hmm. talking about that. There's that scene in All the President's Men where Robert Redford is meeting with, uh, with the whistleblower in the, in, the, uh, in the garage, the parking garage. I used that once to describe what Lindsay just said, and people looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> like, surely that's not happening at a general conference. Oh, friends, it is happening. It happens. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I met a and worked with a undisclosed delegate from another U.S. annual conference who, like, will straight up say, like, how to vote instructions, like, definitely get sent out, and they're just like, is this really? a way for us to do church, to make, to have like, to conference, to make decisions, or is this just a large political game? Well, and if you're not in privilege and power, you don't have the resources to travel or to connect and network across the entire denomination. It's not, it's not accessible to you. So the first time we're interacting with some of these delegates is that two week window of the general conference. And we're, we're praying that trust is established. That's what we hope for, you know? And it's, it's just the model, the model is breaking down too. Well, I was going to say two, two things. The same thing, Brian, happened at jurisdictional conference. Here's, here's the best way to vote for bishops. 
which was slightly insulting to receive that. Um, but the other thing is for folks might be interested in a book called United Methodist at Risk. Fantastic book. Um, it's a really, really good book. It really kind of highlights some of the things that we're talking about, the behind the scenes things. I, I would recommend that. You probably can find, you have to find a used copy, obviously. It's so what does the aftermath of a divorce look like? I think it's two Christmases for most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Two Christmases. Um, it's to benefit the kids, you see. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, let's just use Jason and I as an example. The divorce happens and one of us goes one way. Just kidding. And one <laughs> goes the other. Um, <laughs> but Jason and I, I've known Jason more than half of my life. And so I think more about the relationships and the covenant that we have as clergy. And I know that that doesn't just go away, but I think it's going to be a greater, it's going to be a greater separation than people acknowledge. So I'm like, what is the grief support following a separation? Because to Brian's point, I've seen the logos for the liberationist music uh, movement for um, global Methodist church, you know, but what is the grieving? <laughs> what is that going to look like when I have friends and colleagues who are going to go? And so I, you know, I think the money stuff, they'll work it out. You know, that will be kind of the, the messy piece of it all. I'm just like, what is our, what does our relationship look like moving forward? And, and for me personally, like I've had, even, even during the pandemic, like, face-to-face -face conversation with colleagues and I beg them to reconsider mm -hmm. because I mean, I love them. Like in spite of the fact that we deeply disagree and I'm like, and they really do not believe me when I say like, I would never advocate for you being forced to do anything you were uncomfortable doing. And yeah. they do not believe me. Like, yeah. and it makes me real sad. Yeah. Brian, you've, you've been a really good, a model for that too, being in relationship and in ministry with, with people who disagree theologically on some issues. You know, one of the things that I'm hopeful for as the aftermath of, of, of this is that there will be a renewed focus on the local church and on the mission to make disciples. And part of that hope is we will no longer be distracted by having this conversation again and again. And again, but I mean, but at the same time, I'm also hopeful that we will be a more inclusive church. And by inclusive, I mean, y'all come like everybody. Uh, and we, as a denomination still have a lot of work around that to do. We, we, you know, we've kind of been zoned in on, on one particular demographic of folks, but we got a whole other, we got more work to do. Yeah. More crew. work to do. It's we're we're landing the plane here. <laughs> so who are the parties that might emerge from a, a divorce, so to speak? I'm putting that in air quotes, but you can't see me because it's audio. Yeah. But like, yeah. like it, how many denominations do you wind up with? What what is their general sort of shape? Yeah. Well, Lindsay, you just named uh, the two branches that are forming. Yeah, I think like ones we know of liberation liberationist movement global methodist church united methodist church i don't know if what is now the united methodist church will stay that will become the methodist church like i have no idea i also think that there are going to be at least two or other two or three other expressions that we don't know yet like it's like when you it's like when you vote for a president it's like oh it's democrat or republican well watch out for the third party you know and so i think we're going to have a few other expressions pop up not i don't think they'll be as strong or so there's as, a rock there's a ross perot out there there's a, um, i'm dead there's a ross perot out there. <laughs> yes so i think there are people who are like i'm just going to do a home church and it's just me and i'm a expression of the methodist movement all right i just think we have to be open to a lot more yeah. expressions yeah absolutely i agree with that i agree with that and I think the three will talk to each other. Like we'll have, you know, 
you, you know, it, dinners. <laughs> it, it's interesting to me to think historically 1968 was the merger mm-hmm. that birthed the United Methodist Church. And when you think about history, that's really not that long. And we've been fighting the whole time. The whole, whole time. time. But historically, we've been here before. Mm-hmm. We've done this before. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not losing sleep over it, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm not either. I am kind of like, I'm with you, Brian. I, I love my siblings who did, who think differently than me theologically and particularly around LGBTQ inclusion. And I also am deeply resolved that it is time. So I want to do that with the less, with as little harm as possible. And at, and at this point, even though I don't want them to leave, right? like that means I have to like, just personally, like I have to offer them that kind of freedom. Well, really, I guess yeah. I want general conference to offer them that freedom. Yeah. So, uh, and that's not me advocating uh, towards y'all. I mean, that's just really. No, no, no. I hear that. I hear that. I think. I think also it should be said that just because the separation will happen or if, you know, when it happens, doesn't mean that there won't be hard decisions to make in the future. We will yeah. still have to respond to what's happening culturally. We will still be, you know, there's, I said earlier, there's a lot of hard work left to do. I mean, we didn't talk about it, but the boards and agencies, are mm-hmm. we going to share those? Are we going to divvy those up? I mean, the work of the general church, how are we going to address that too? That's a different speaker. That's yeah, a different day. Right. It's a different day. <laughs> I, I would say, I would say to anybody who is thinking about looking at another, another forming branch to really look and read everything that's there yep. to ensure that it is indeed the fit that you are looking for. Um, yep. There's a lot of, go figure, a lot of misinformation out there. Yeah. about what is and is not going to take place in these in these other branches and, and yeah. i think do your due diligence to yes. really really kind of take it all in and read it i mean brian's been present when i've done presentations and people have been like oh i didn't know that yeah mm-hmm. yeah follow go to their websites follow them on social media yeah do your homework do your homework so the global methodists would kind of be a quote-unquote conservative denomination the liberation Methodists would be a quote-unquote progressive denomination, and whatever becomes of the United Methodists would be kind of in the middle. Is that kind of what I'm getting from yeah. this conversation? Yeah, the centrists, for the most part. Or, I should not say that so, like, you know, certain. Or the folks who b- still believe that we can live in a big tent, and they may align more with WCA or with Reconciling Ministry. I mean, I hate to put strict labels, but I think John, that's right. Um, and so then the, the current United Methodist Church is still the big 10. And um, having read a lot of the materials from both uh, the Liberation Methodist Connection and from uh, the Global Methodist Church, as someone who grew up United Methodist, there's some interesting and complicated polity differences Yep. This is this is not all about having a individual stance be different, and it's literally a clone. They are yeah. There are They're very different it. polity implications involved in that, uh, including um, how appointments are made. Uh, appointments uh, are uh, for those of you who are not United Methodists who might still be listening, are, are <laughs> how how we talk about where we all serve and the role of the local church in that appointment process is different in both of uh, the branches that we've been talking about. So how does that change the jobs and the roles that clergy people play, specifically people who are professionally religious, so to speak, you know, people who are out there, you know, doing the preaching and the teaching and the organizing that is specifically centered on the church? What does a divorce or a split, how does that affect them? Yeah, or even just the proposed like changes to the organization and structure of these different churches. Oh, I mean, so I, my office is, I herd clergy. It's like herding cats sometimes, but um, love you all. (laughs) Um, But it is essentially like making sure that they have the right status, they have what they need. And so 
my, like from my seat, if Brian wants to go to the global Methodist church, he doesn't. But if he did, my job is to pack up his file and like have everything ready for him to make that move. And then any structural stuff, it's like a transfer. They, the new denomination receives him and any process change or appointment change, that's up to them. Um, but I feel like the Methodist church needs to be committed to do that work and pack people up and say, we love you, go with God, you know, um, kind of stuff. So I, I, all that to say, I can't really speak to how it could affect clergy who decide to, to transfer in a sense. Do you think for this, in this hypothetical scenario that Brian's job <laughs> or role changes though in some significant kind of way? Like if Brian gets shipped off, does does the nature of his work as a professionally religious person change somehow in a fundamental or meaningful kind of way? So I would say... I don't see a scenario where anyone would be shipped off, but that it would be the decision of the clergy person. And for these newer kind of grassroots starting out denominations, I could see Brian being bivocational. That there may not be a church that can support him full time. And so he's also going to have to do whatever. Um, so I, I think there are going to be more bivocational clergy regardless of a divorce, but I think especially in the new season. You know, talking with, you know, our prior guests and just other people, you know, that seems to be more of the trend, you know, anyway. And I think given the history of the church, you know, we haven't had professional clergy, um, you know, for a long or for very long in our, you know, collective Christian history. So it's sort of a yet another new thing that, you know, needs to adapt and change as well. So, you know, regardless of where uh, the people as Methodists land um, in the in the coming years, I think just to the rest of the Christian church in general, we'll have to start thinking about doing mission in those ways. You know, there are benefits and detriments to it, you know, uh, at, at least for Methodist clergy, you know, if you get appointed somewhere, you get a place to live as well as serve. Um, that might not be a reality soon. So like all of the, all of the strings that are attached to that, but in a sense of like simplifying that just because we can't actually support it may change the, the landscape of how we do ministry in the forefront. In, at least in, in my, in my prayer life, you know, that's, that sort of makes the clergy a little bit more adaptable, mm -hmm. a little bit more connected uh, because you have like a real purchase in, in the world rather than um, the expectation of sitting behind a desk doing, doing ministry, another air quotes thing that folks can't see, doing ministry, run the fruit stand at the, at the local farmer's market, you yeah. know, like that's your primary thing. And like, you know, there's a different type of connection. I think there would be uh, a different type of spiritual awakening that, that comes with that. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you. And, and I think the other element here is the pandemic uh, is also going mm -hmm. to influence that bivocationalness or pastors with side hustles. And I think the, the implication then is that the laity will, will have to step up and the laity will have to lead in ways that they maybe haven't in the past in order for the church to be more fruitful and successful in its ministry. And so in a case, so what, I guess what I'm saying is I see us returning back to the early Methodist roots where it was a lay-led movement. So um, recognizing that we're uh, over our general time already, I'm going to uh, wrap this up. Maybe maybe we need to have you guys back because we have more to talk about. Sure. Well, it wouldn't be the first time we've needed to have somebody back. So what is giving you all joy right now? Jason, <laughs> we are we are recording this uh, the week after daylight savings time, and y'all, I'm tired. <laughs> Been tired all week, yeah. um, but um, conversations like this actually are, are giving me joy uh, because I get to talk about the future of the church. And yes. you know, I grew up United Methodist, and I love the local church, 
and I have great hopes for the local church. And I believe that no matter what the denomination does or doesn't do, God is still going to be present in the local church. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I don't think I need to add anything. I, it's, it's been really great to be with you all um, and to kind of process the postponement of the general conference um, and just to kind of get a pulse on where we are. Just to share my joy real, real quick. We, um, you know, finding joy in the smallest of things like our single board at, at the garden, like they made like a, a decision to empower the children's ministry folks to paint a wall in our lobby with chalkboard paint so that little kids uh, in the garden loves kids um, so that they can literally just go and use dust-free chalk so people don't freak out about clothes and things like that but to literally just go let kids express themselves and yeah and and not and that just makes me look so happy Very garrett cool. what about you Oh, uh, let me see. Well, in the midst of moving and daylight savings, uh, I agree with you. Seven o'clock in the morning comes as a surprise every morning. It's terrible for, for right now. But uh, the sad thing is, you know, packing up all of my books and tchotchkes at the office. Uh, one thing that I found from, I guess, years past was a huge tote, like one of those regular size packing totes of like old easter candy so like some of like some of the like the weird treasures that end up in like the backs of church classes closets are always a favorite thing of mine just to like yes. discover um and it reminds me of my favorite discovery at my first church um was sort of was this baby doll that they used as baby jesus um, but it was like, it was all scuffed up and it was one of those winky baby dolls and one of the eyes wasn't working. So I would hide it around people's offices. Um, and I would ask them after a week, I'm like, have you found Jesus yet? And they would go, um, and, uh, I would hear audible gasps or groans or whatever. And I'm like, oh, it sounds like you found Jesus. Praise God. <laughs> Um, so it just reminded me of like a little bit yeah. of fun. So now I'm thinking about what I'm going to leave here um, to to uh, to continue on that little tradition. So, Garrett, before John goes, like one of my brief like joys has recently has been like you and John planning to like wed off your children to each other, and how somehow I became like the Alfred in this Bruce Wayne situation. I don't know how that happened. Garrett, we agreed on goats, right? Goats for the dowry. Yes, yes. Um, so old school. I like it. <laughs> Got to keep it biblical sometimes. He said <laughs> sheep or goats, and I just I really felt like you know goat mm. cheese is where I felt like a judgment call though. Sheep or goats, you know? Yeah. John, <laughs> John, what's giving you joy right now? Oh, I have nothing of any depth or or any kind of insight to offer to this conversation. Uh, what brought me joy this morning was uh, a friend of mine posted a video in which I was the dummy where he was showing off a jujitsu technique and explaining it to people. And it's a really sick one-armed darsh choke that is, is just really fun and really cool. So that is what brought me joy this week. Just simulated violence, I guess you could call it. Anyways, I really miss jujitsu, y'all. It's killing me. I miss kendo. I need to like, you know, hit people with sticks. This is you, my. I think you'll survive. I think you'll survive. I don't anyway, think I will. I anyway. We want to thank everybody for taking a listen to us at Logosish. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at logosish.com, and anywhere that you subscribe to podcasts. Have a good day. Buy some books and read the blog. Support local bookstores. Who's who's ending this recording? It's just going to. John's go. recording. He has to end it. Brian's trying to end this, but I refuse to end it. We've given we've given him too much power. You know what we need to have is like a global conference to talk about the power of that. that we need have. to get everybody together in the same room. <laughs> Robert's rules of order: majority vote, sometimes two thirds, depending on if it's a really important issue. Would you just end the podcast? Fine.
Hey guys, this is John, just finishing up the podcast. Our music today was by Audionautics.com. Brian already highlighted our social media feeds. You can check us out at Logosish.com if you want to learn more and check out the blog or past episodes. Or, of course, you can just use your standard podcast software. For the most part, we're on pretty much everything. But thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.